Welcome to My Business Playbook, where we pull back the curtain on the steps and missteps of successful people. You'll hear a raw and unfiltered play-by-play of what's worked and what hasn't, giving you helpful advice and insights so you can create an amazing business. I'm your host, Laura Higgins, and this is My Business Playbook. Hello and welcome to My Business Playbook. It is so good to have you with me today. Now, it might have been a little over a year ago. It must have actually been longer than that. Yeah, definitely it was longer than that. So I was in LA. I was just trying to think, when did COVID hit? Uh, I'm all confused. I was in LA. I was ordering a coffee. And all of a sudden, I felt very aware of the fact that I'm very Australian. And, And a friend of mine had pointed out that Australians kind of order things a little weird. Like, don't you think we say things a little weird? And I was like, no, I don't know. I don't think so. Anyway, I went up to the counter to order my coffee. And I said to the barista, hey, I think I might just grab a long black. I think that's what I might. I might grab that. And she just like kind of paused and looked at me like, what? Like so confused. What do you mean you think you might grab a long black. What does that mean? Like, what kind of order is that? Like, she was like, you think like, yes or no? Like, what do you mean you might? What, what kind of language is this? And I was like, I started getting stressed because I realized, oh my gosh, we do order weird. And then she was like, looking at me like, you don't even know what you're doing. And then I started getting all sweaty. (laughs) And it just got weird. And then I was like, just give me a coffee and a cup to take away. And even that was like, actually it's called takeout you know it's different here anyway the guest I have on today's podcast how's that for a segue the guest I have on today's podcast is Nick Stone of Bluestone Lane and I love Bluestone Lane because they are an Australian coffee shop and when you find an Australian cafe when you're traveling especially in the states you just kind of kiss the ground you're like this is the best this has made my day I'm so glad I'm here (laughs) And so today's guest is Nick Stone of Bluestone Lane. And Bluestone Lane is an Australian coffee shop, cafe and lifestyle brand based in the US. Now, these guys roast their own coffee and they have over 50 cafes, 50. (laughs) That's a lot across New York, California and Washington, D.C. Now, if you're an Aussie and you're seeking a good cup of coffee in the States and, you know, that's when we can travel again definitely go to Bluestone Lane. You will love it. I love, love, love what they do. And in this conversation I have with Nick Stone, we talk all things, how he has built this crazy successful business and actually how he's transitioned from being this AFL football player to a banker and now to a founder and CEO of a coffee company. It's quite the story. So I know you're going to love it. I know you're going to be inspired, particularly if you've thought about scaling your business and and actually growing at a rapid pace. This is for you. So we're going to dive straight into my conversation with Nick Stone of Bluestone Lane. Welcome, Nick. It's so good to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us all the way from Orange County. How is it in Orange County? <laughs> Thanks, Laura. Um, Orange County is very uh, summery and, and sunny, even though we're in the mi- middle of winter. And uh, yeah, it's lovely down here, actually. You know, But uh, we're all hanging out at home, quarantining, as we have been for 
basically the last 12 months. So, uh, you know, I'm very grateful that it's sunny. It keeps the spirits high and optimism. So uh, It yeah, keeps the vibes, <laughs> the vibes good. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Totally. So I'm really looking forward to chatting with you today because you have built an incredible business with Bluestone Lane. And I just thought we'd dive straight in. Tell us all about Bluestone Lane and what you actually do and, and how you started your business. Sure. Well, Bluestone Lane is an Australian-inspired premium cafe brand. We started our first location, opened our first location in mid-2013 in Midtown Manhattan, Midtown East, in the bottom of a Class B corporate office tower, a subterranean basement where you had no ability to find the store externally. We had no signage. We weren't prohibited to have any signage. So really, the only way you could you could find us was quite a little of a luring track down a consistently broken escalator. So it was really a friend <laughs> had to had to take on the good service of of bringing you down. And uh, it was very close to where I was working in uh, corporate finance in banking. So um, you know it was strategically placed so I could visit frequently, both in the morning and in the afternoon, for my own coffee and have a avocado smash needs, uh, but also to keep an eye, <laughs> uh, an eye on the operations. And uh, you know, since then, we've opened over 50 locations across eight markets uh, in the US and a couple of stores in Toronto and Canada. And we have two concepts. We have a, a coffee shop concept, which is really influenced by the, the coffee shops or those hole-in-the-wall staples that you find in office towers in central business districts in, in Australia. And then we have a cafe concept, which is where you find the classic broader Australian fresh food made-to-order proposition and uh, where you can sit down and have a latte and a glass or a flat white in a, a ceramic, uh, read the paper, have have a big brekkie, healthy brekkie, and uh, you know, use it as a, a real social mechanism to to catch up with friends and you know that business is is busier obviously on the weekend uh but uh you know they both are, are very complementary and work in different types of real estate propositions so yeah that's uh it's been a really busy period we opened uh prior to the pandemic we opened 44 stores in 42 months so we were basically a store a month and we span not only the east coast but the west coast uh which is which is a very complicated thing to do. Um, New York <laughs> yes. to Los Angeles is, I think, about the same distance as Sydney or Brisbane to Perth. So there's not that many economies of scale. You know, you're really setting up a brand new concept, and we've done it very early in our life cycle. Uh, we're, you know, we're seven years old now from the first store, but uh, you know, it, it was a it was a big sort of chasm for us to jump. But uh, it's been. You know, a very colourful journey, but one um, I feel very grateful to be be a part of and and the founder of. Yeah, that is incredible. I can't believe you opened forty four stores in forty two months. That yeah. is wild. <laughs> it was it was quite <laughs> hectic. Yeah, and, um, and I think because of the the geographic fragmentation made it particularly challenging. So you know, Toronto is a long way from. Uh, Washington DC or or Southern California and uh, navigating that was challenging. We probably bit off a little bit more than we could chew, but uh, the brand and and our whole concept has never been uh, has has never lacked sort of courage or the or the interest in um, exploring and prototyping new new ideals. But 
you know, it's been an incredible journey. I've learned so much uh, about life, people. Uh, I've learned so much about myself, my support network, and, and I've learned um, an extraordinary amount in a very short period of time about retail, uh, hospitality, um, consumer proposition. So I feel very blessed to to have founded something that has had uh, early stage momentum and really built a brand that's far bigger than than our business operation in in many in many ways, and to learn yeah. about the consumer psyche and the customer experience. So it's been it's been great. And so for you, you've not come from a hospitality background. You're not, you know. For me, I'm I'm actually a, I used to be a barista before I started my business. I worked in coffee, and my first marketing job was working for a coffee roaster. So I'd kind of had this background of coffee and actually with last time I was in LA when I found one of your stores I was like praise the lord I'm <laughs> so glad because it was it was just this thing of oh I know this coffee is going to be good because you you've you know marketed it as this Australian coffee but my question is for you is how did you start a hospitality business with no hospitality experience what what was that like for you well I, th- I think that ultimately I was a consumer and I was an unfulfilled consumer and I could identify quite precisely what I miss uh, from from home, from these quite wonderful Australian coffee culture or cafe culture. And, uh, you know, I really started thinking about how to build a brand that represents and can deliver on the things that I'm missing. And the value proposition was shaped around that. But I think like in most things in life they can be learned quite quickly if you're if you apply yourself and you're willing to be a student of the industry or a particular company and if you think about hospitality in its core it's about service it's about providing someone with a service that they 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 feel satisfied and they appreciate and uh, it, it they they leave feeling better than, than maybe when they walked in and if you apply that to to what we're doing, our business is really orientated around EQ, soft skills. It's about service, humanity. It's about recognition. It's about putting a smile on someone's face. It's not really about like technical, intellectual property, like this really tough skill to to navigate. Yes, making coffee, um, particularly uh, at 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 scale and with with at speed, is tough, but it can be mastered. And uh, but what what is far harder to execute is just a consistent, very high elevated level of service. And uh, you know, I think where I my background was was in two different industries, one in sport and and one also in financial services in banking. But both were orientated around team and teamwork. And I think applying a lot of those lessons to to building a consumer hospitality company came to the fore. So yeah, I think it. I think it. I am a good lesson, or well, not a lesson. I am an example of someone who who has had three different careers today, and uh, even though they appear to be you know, you know mutually exclusive, they do have a lot of commonality. Uh, they're linked to people and interacting as a team, and you know, in our case, EQ is far more important than. Than IQ and it's um, it's you know we've been able to do it. Yeah, that's so so cool. So, talk us through the timeline of how you've you've done this. You played for Hawthorne, 
My husband is a mad AFL fan, so he will be like, you need to know these details. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, yeah, I played, <laughs> I it, I played right it. thing. I was a journeyman. I, I played six seasons. I had two years at Collingwood. That's I got drafted in year twelve from Wesley College. I was seventeen. I wasn't didn't have my driver's license. Hadn't finished my year twelve exams. Had finished my English exam on the Friday. Got drafted on the Sunday. Then I had uh, math methods. I had ch- two Chinese exams. <laughs> that was that was pretty funny. Like going out to Victoria Park and then leaving to to complete my Chinese exams. Uh, and Wait, then as in. What do you mean Chinese exam? Oh, well, I studied Chinese in year 12. Wow. Yeah, so no, I wasn't a particularly good student, but, um, <laughs> you know, it was it was an interesting journey. Um, and, but, you know, I, 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 I played two years, kind of two years at Hawthorne, two years at St Kilda, uh, and my career was, was finished at the end of the 2005 season. I was 23 years of age. Fortunately, I've been to university those six years, so I did uh, a business banking finance commerce degree uh, for, for six years part-time, so it was three years full-time, and I was able to transition into, uh, into the banking finance industry and, uh, and then you know, establish a career there, which I did for 10 years. And uh, you know, that led to me working in not only sort of Melbourne and Sydney, but, but working in uh, New York and in London, and I had a really great opportunity to uh, try and build a business in 2011 in in banking. And uh, you know, uh, a couple of years later, after that, I decided to start Bluestone on the side. And uh, I, you know, that was in mid 2013. And I elected to take a break, a pause from banking, not knowing if I'd go back or not. But uh, in mid 2016, and from there. Yeah, I've been full-time CEO. So I was actually CEO of Bluestone, founder and CEO, uh, while I was working in financial services for the first uh, three years. So we got it to 12 stores before I, I took, took a leap. Um, yeah, there was, a, was an inflection point wow. there that you had to go either way. I had to go all in or, or all out. And that's what I decided. Uh, so how, how did you find the right people to run the stores, like people that you would trust to to kind of give off the vibe because you've got a very distinct Australian cafe vibe. So you needed the right people to do that. How did you actually find those people? I think it's about values alignment. You're looking, you're looking for skills and you're looking for interests that are compatible with what we're trying to do. And it goes back to very much that we, we're hiring for personality like, and we're hiring for, for values and this EQ orientation rather than any sort of technical proficiency. And, you know, I, I think you, you you learn a lot about people through just spending time chatting about their background, their interests, what why they like hospitality, what parts of hospitality. And you can you can start to to see who's really interested in working in a brand that is dedicated to service dedicated to making people feel special that we have locals not customers and that is the same approach that we apply to hiring in any position Uh, and it's it's a huge part of the induction and training is is really about we're we're a service-led we're about having locals not customers we want to know all of our locals name face and order we want it to be reciprocal we want you to have develop these relationships and have this personalization and we want you to be yourself within within the framework of the Bluestone Lane brand. 
I love that. That that was a bit different from, from hiring in coffee in in the states. So, you know, if you look at the big guys, between Duncan and Starbucks, they have they own sixty percent of all coffee shops in the United States. It, it, crazy. It's just crazy. We're talking like thirty thousand stores between them, twenty five, thirty thousand stores. And both of those brands are orientated around product fulfillment, like how do you get someone caffeine as fast as possible? Not really about relationships or, or, or chat or banter or connection. It's really about, you know, product and, and doing it as conveniently and, and quickly as possible. So when we're hiring and we're, we're talking about, Hey, we, we want you to, we're going to train you to make the most beautiful, delicious espresso made beverages. But you know, what's more important than that is, is the service proposition and how you make people feel and how the space and the and the environment and the atmosphere is is welcoming and inclusive and genuine escape for people from their office or from home or or whatever's going on in their life and uh, you know we we've just been able I think effectively articulate that and then we've had role models who have reinforced it every day yeah. and um, you know Bluestone is just the is really the beneficiary of just extremely talented and selfless individuals who want to make a difference to people and want to want to light up their mornings or afternoon and it's a really beautiful thing and it's core to the purpose of who we are and honestly that's what I missed when I moved to the states I, I wasn't a, you know this crazy coffee snob that would do pour overs at home and you know drink espresso in the morning no I was I I, I love good coffee but I, I had basically no knowledge on on the coffee industry but what i missed so profoundly was that notion of of the social ritual of of going to get a coffee and the 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 ride down the the elevator then the walk and then the small talk and then walking in and having that recognition that basically ego boost that you're the most important yeah. person in the in the cafe and I just thought, wow, like, why, why can't we do this here? You know, people need it. People are stressed out of their brain in New York running around and it's a hard city. It's, a, it's the best city in the world in my opinion, but it's a hard city. Yeah. Why can't we make yeah. it a bit softer and give people these, these uh, points of, you know, small touch points of community? And, uh, you know, that's what we focused on and I think that's what's underpinned our success. I love that. The small touch points of community. It's, it's so good. And I think the barista is the modern day barman in a sense. Like there is this thing of you have this rapport, you you kind of share, you kind of go through seasons of people's lives. As a barista, I, I would, people would come in and I would, you know, they would tell me I'm pregnant or I'm like, I'm moving here. I got this new job or I finished uni or you kind of share these big milestones with people or and also at the same time, these big moments of, you know, people getting a diagnosis that sucks or like really tough seasons as well. So it's really, but the one constant I think in these people's day is that they drink a coffee and they like to go somewhere where they're recognized and, and known. And I love that that has been the basis of your business. I think it's it's really, really cool and obviously so needed in in the states i think it's it's something that we take for granted here in australia that it's actually it's actually a really unique thing isn't it yeah i think that the power of the barista is is understated and they are part counselor they are part yeah. friend they are part they they are part of of your this positive energizer 
and they're they're essential part of the daily life of of a lot of people and in Australia they it's really profound impact they have and I just thought that this is this is underappreciated and there's a really great opportunity to empower these incredibly talented skilled individuals who can really make a big impact and that's come to the fore if you look through the pandemic the amount of notes and messages and uh, LinkedIn messages and requests and things like that I get people just saying hey your your team got me through the last six months I've been alone wow. in my apartment I have not been able to see anyone I have not I, I have not seen my family in a year two years really tragic stories you know like people important have died and I have not been able to get there because of the pandemic but your team made me smile every morning and that is a that that is the honest truth of the type of sincere and messages that we've received and it's moments like that where I I, I truly am my proudest it's it's mm. feedback like that that makes me feel the most satisfied around that we we're, we're really a force for good and glorification of opening new stores and you know being written in press and you know being invited to certain things yeah that's great but like nothing matters as much as the as the customer feedback when it's that significant and this is deep this is not just superficial yeah my the dress i bought looks great on me thank you no this is like you know your team made me really feel great that that day and turned around my afternoon so that is that has truly been wonderful and and that really is again so personal and that's what inspired creating the brand it wasn't a session i had about knowing how to make great coffee or wanting to have my flat white made a certain way every day. Yeah, that was important, but but nowhere near as important as having a, a, a true local establishment where I felt special. And it, it existed in New York and in the US, and I w- would observe it in places like Yamani and Petty. People would be obsessed about their manicurist, and they <laughs> yeah. would have this like really deep relation. They'd know everything about each other, and they would go the same time every week, same with like, hair salon like even even my wife you know she's from melbourne but like she she loves going to this particular person jackie in soho and like it's it's a half day extravaganza and she just loves it she can't (laughs) wait to find out on all the gossip just just to have a bit of self-care and moment and um, i could see it also in in some fitness class concepts and the community they were building there but I was just blown away when you talk about like, oh, so where's your local coffee shop? Where's your local cafe? They'd be, oh, I just, I just grab a Starbucks on the way to work or I just, I just swing past this place. And I'm like, but you know, is it special to you? It's like, oh, I just, you know, I just get the coffee. It's good. You know, it's, it's big or it's hot. <laughs> like, oh, well, that's, that's different from what, what I think about, um, coffee culture and cafe culture. And that's, that's what's been ingrained in Australia. Cause remember, like Australia is the land where the chains have failed. Starbucks has failed. Yes. There's no Duncan. There's no Costa Coffee. Uh, there's no Tim Hortons. Now they're the four biggest brands in the world by an absolute mile, and none of them are in Australia in any in any meaningful scale. Starbucks has come back in by sort of like a more licensed arrangement. McCafe is the biggest, but even McCafe originated in Melbourne globally for McDonald's and is is more elevated than like a typical McCafe. I think you find in the US. But the Australian coffee culture is independent. It's those owner-operators, and that's why the relationship is so 
deep and sincere. And uh, that's what I've been trying to do at scale. And we call it boutique at scale for that reason. That's got to still feel personalized and and individual and special. But it needs to work as a a cohesive brand. So there's certain things that that have to be uniform and uh, like the coffee and the speed to make the coffee and the the food. You know, you can't go to one location and taste materially different, right? And but but we're happy for the store to look slightly different and have that that personality. Yeah. And how do you in establishing the the brand so quickly and across as you say like East Coast, West Coast, Toronto and and DC, how do you maintain that brand quality? How do you actually make sure that it looks and feels the same, you know, it has the same vibe every time. If I went to a Bluestone blue in LA, it would be the same as New York. How do, you, how do you do that? So really it comes down to your hiring, your, your training, uh, your standards. So there's certain things that we just will not compromise on and then there's certain uh, freedoms we provide for, for the team to have that autonomy and to develop those relationships. And as it relates to the store look and feel, we, we, we don't have two blue stones that look the same. We, we use a lot of creativity in how we design our stores based on the part of, uh, the town that they're in, um, the influence on the culture there, uh, the, the natural sort of design features or aesthetics of the store. And, uh, we want it to feel fresh and personalized and, even though there could there's 50 bluestones, what I want our locals to say is that's my bluestone. That's my bluestone because that team knows me and that's where I like sitting and it can be entirely different from another location five kilometers away and that's perfectly okay because we, I think we were very good at distilling what our local wants to, to have a lot of uniqueness and and to be kind of bespoke but then we knew what needed to be uh, consistent and uniform and you just start to disaggregating like what are the which uh, which elements of the experience fall in either bucket and then you ensure that you have standards and governance around it and I think because I, I wasn't from a hospitality background and I had worked in banking for 10 years advising businesses on how they create value how they 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 could run how they're running the business maybe suboptimally or whether scope for improvement. I had a very objective lens on some of these things. I, I think I could just without any pretense or or emotion or historic norms or training like decide yeah that that's what what I believe our local wants. That's what they don't want. I could use data to support it, and then we could pivot very quickly if it, if it wasn't sort of working out the way that we anticipated and. You know, I, I just think that having that unbridled process of, of looking and, and looking at different ways to change and prototyping and just trial, uh, helped us a lot because, uh, you know, we could just, we could pivot and we could see that, no, I think everyone wants this to be the same way. And then we realized that, no, they, they, they want it slightly different. Okay. We can, let's quickly adapt. Let's, let's use our size to our advantage by being more agile than the big guys. And yeah, you know, it's, um, I think it's, I think we also had this notion of in Australia, you, know, you could have an owner that owns 10 different coffee shops, 
but they're all different names. They all have different cuisines. They all have different aesthetics, colors. And to the consumer, you don't know that it's one owner because in Australia, that, that works against this independent ethos, right? You know, you have two of the same yeah. brand. It's like a sellout's commercial. It's, it's like a totally ridiculous thing, but, <laughs> but it, it's part of the culture. And, oh, you know, I'm Aussie and I get it. Um, so I always knew that, hey, I, I need to have uniformity because that's very important to the US consumer, but I still want to have this bespoke sort of personalization which is near and dear yeah. to me as an Australian and an Australian um, coffee culture sort of consumer. So that has been that balance and I think that's why we've been able to do it quite naturally. Um, but when yeah. you see other people try and reinvent it um, and it just doesn't feel, it feels a bit sort of you know, commercial or um, too methodical. Yeah, and it's such a fine balance, isn't it? And even whenever I've gone to the States, there's been, you know, I'll see the little sandwich boards of people being like, Australian coffee served here. And it's a full on strategy that people use because I th- it's like they recognize, oh, actually, Australian coffee is, is quite good. Well, <laughs> so Aust- the- Australian coffee is, is a global brand. Just that. Yeah. Like Australian cafe, even, you know, Kiwi cafes, New Zealand. It's yes. Anapedia and. Um, <laughs> And you could say that it, it is a global brand. If you go to London, you go to Hong Kong, you go to Singapore, you go to New York, you go to LA, like people talk about, oh, yeah, it's like it's an, it's an Aussie cafe. And they know when they get there that it's going to have great service, friendly service. They know you're going to have terrific coffee, espresso made. They know you're going to have an avocado toast. They know you're going to have healthy yes. food <laughs> offerings and it's probably going to be light and, and upbeat and optimistic. And how incredible because if you yeah. if people ask you, oh, Talk, talk to me about the, the culinary cuisine of Australia. It's pretty <laughs> it's hard <blunt>. to describe. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, it could be a bit of seafood. It could be Southeast Asian. It could be – it's very cosmopolitan and reflective of basically migration patterns. But the one thing that I think we can say that we own is this sophisticated yet accessible healthy breakfast brunch offering, right? And, and yeah. Yeah. that is that – is, it's, it's almost ubiquitous now and it's only going to continue to accelerate because from what we see with a millennial customer, like they are very interested in better for you, premium yeah. Yeah. products, premium experiences and service-led and they're interested in espresso-made coffee. So I, I'm feeling um, very optimistic about the future. I think, I think Australia is just many, many years ahead of where the world will be and it actually makes sense. So if, and I'm, I'm sort of deviating a bit, Laura, so you can cut me off in a second. But <laughs> even if you look at the story of Starbucks, right, and I had no idea about, you know, the success of Starbucks. I had a very myopic view. I was like a classic Australian. Starbucks are terrible. Or, or Starbucks, they don't know what they're doing. And it was very closed. And then when I came over to study in business school in New York, I couldn't believe Starbucks was worth nearly 100 billion US and had done it effectively in 30 years. I was like, this is just insane. Wow. And what I'd realized is Schultz, who's, who's the effectively like the founder, Howard Schultz, just such a visionary, incredibly inspiring person and just you know, a wonderful leader. He, he had been to Italy in the late 80s, uh, mid to late 80s, and he'd brought espresso uh, to the US and really to commercialize it in a mild scale. Now, if you think back to when espresso coffee came in, and so the America went from drip-based coffee culture to espresso in the late 80s. If you think about Australia, we went from a tea-drinking culture, like with strong British colonial Commonwealth influence, to espresso in the 40s 
pre and post World War II, particularly in places like Melbourne, where you had mass migration from Italy, from Greece, and they brought their espresso machines. So we started drinking espresso coffee decades before uh, the Americans did at scale. And I think that's why our iteration and evolution in the, in the premium, more artisanal coffee spectrum is just more, more advanced. Further along. Yeah. Yeah. I could be wrong though. But that's, <laughs> that's insane. I think I've heard you say this before that Starbucks has only not worked in two places and it's Australia and Italy. Italy, yeah. <laughs> Did, right? And it hasn't worked well in Israel either. So yeah, you know that this is you can see where where Australia sits in the in the coffee echelon, and uh, yeah, you know it's it's quite <laughs> amazing, really. Australia is the thirteenth biggest economy in the world, like incredibly wealthy country per capita, huge consumers of coffee, and Starbucks Starbucks failed, you know. But they it's interesting they they they're back in Australia and they're focused on areas where there's shopping centers which often are frequented by international students because they have this brand resonance with starbucks it stands for all these great things about you know america and and it's a it's the biggest brand and so you know, you can you can increasingly see more starbucks creeping back in particularly yeah. in those areas and uh i think there's a lot of there's there's a lot of room for just different options and that's the other yeah. thing that's crazy like in in manhattan between Dunkin' and Starbucks, they have basically a thousand outlets in New York City between those two brands. And I know there's a lot of people in Manhattan, <laughs> or new, you know, eight million uh, a day, but not currently, but, you know, pre-pandemic. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of mouths that, that want coffee, but there needs to be a lot more alternatives and there needs to be alternatives that offer a better total experience, service, quality of product, uh, and, and healthy food. I think that's a huge one and I think that's going to continue to increase as we've seen from COVID and those who are more likely to suffer the the negative effects of uh, of those with poor um, eating habits and, you know, obesity-related illness and uh, pre-existing conditions more often than not. Um, So we've got to be part of the solution to educate people about healthy food and, and where it comes from and moving away from processed Absolutely. And so before we jump into like some practical tips, because I know you have so many practical tips for people who are in startup land, but I just wanted to ask, how has the response been for COVID? How have you guys pivoted? Because obviously it's 2021, things still aren't quite back to normal yet. So what what is the new normal like for you and, and how have you responded to the pandemic? So COVID was an existential challenge for all of retail in the US, but particularly if you had a precarious footprint like ours, which was heavily urban in these big mass density cities. And New York City was the epicenter of COVID in the US. It's now morphed into really states. Let's say now that the state of California is the epicenter. But um, we, we were in a very, very challenging position because we... We had a lot of stores that were reliant on people going to work every day. Our coffee shop model was based around that amenity focus that we serve uh, the same local every day. It was a retention model. Now, when people started to stop going to the office or working from home, that side of the business just fell off a cliff. Where we saw there was a little bit more uh, resilience was our urban residential locations where people 
were quarantining at home or sheltering, sheltering in place and they would come out once a day and come and grab a coffee. But both businesses were dramatically impacted and in our case, our revenue effectively fell 90% uh, you know, in, in a, in a two-week period. So it was incredibly hard because we had a lot of operating leverage, a lot of fixed costs, a lot of, a lot of teammates, and suddenly we had no revenue. So our, our economic position was, was in, in a really challenging spot. So we had to be very decisive and make some heartbreaking decisions, which have turned out to, to be, so we've got more right than wrong. And you know, we've navigated the crisis, uh, and we're still here, but, uh, you know, it, it's been the most complicated thing I've ever had to deal with. In a, in a business perspective and, and a certainly sort of emotional perspective, like when you're the founder and you, you take such great pride and you have really personalized relationships with your team and then suddenly you're talking to them about, you know, that, that, that you no longer, they no longer have a job and it's not through their own performance. It's simply that we're closing these stores because there's no business or it's economically sort of unviable at the moment. You know, that, that was really heartbreaking. And we had over 750 staff and we got down to, 150 in in a I don't know seven day period, you know, having conversations wow. at, at that length and hundreds of people uh, making them redundant was 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 terrible. You you never anticipate that you'd go through something like that. You know, you make one person redundant or maybe two or and not like hundreds. And uh, we had to do it in a very impersonal way. We had to do it over the phone or we had to do it on a video yeah. call because yeah. people weren't allowed to get together and. People were just like everyone was just in, in in a state of panic because the rate of infection in New York when they started to publish how endemic it was already it already was 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 scary. You know, we're talking like there was a rumor when I was there um, and I left on March the thirteenth, but when I when I got there on March the March the tenth, twenty twenty, the rumor was there was already twenty thousand cases in Manhattan. And people were people were were in shock. They were, well, do, do I have it, or have I given to someone, or I'm not feeling well? And sure enough, we had COVID cases in our team that week. So people were getting infected late Feb, and it was everywhere already. So yeah, you know, what did we do? We just realised that we we wanted to keep as many stores as we could keep open that were economically viable because we wanted to be a beacon of hope for our for our locals. We knew that the community needed still to be able to, to get a coffee. We wanted to retain as many jobs as we could. And we also wanted to be able to support causes and really essential workers that, that needed us to remain open and, and for us to basically provide them free product. And that's what we did. We donated 50,000 coffees, uh, in a, in a wow. six week period. We, we had a campaign called Fuel for Healthcare Heroes. And what was really special about that whole campaign is we went to 30 hospitals across four or five states and we did the deliveries ourselves. Uh, I, I went to a couple of hospitals in LA. Uh, the whole executive team delivered. My brother was the first. He went to Elmhurst in Queens, a public hospital, which really was seeing more fatalities than any other hospital, probably the most uh, in, in the US by mile. And, uh, you know, he did the first curbside drop-off to the medical team there. Yeah, it was it was a really really special moment, but but uh, and and it gave us also a, a feeling of positivity and and just 
importance that we had to had to keep we had to we had to remain galvanized that we we're going to get through it and even though it's it's been very challenging we're going to make it through we're resilient and we're we're strong enough and uh you know but we we needed to make some dramatic changes and on march the 16th no customer or local was allowed into any of our stores that was it so the only way you could order is via your phone or or from your computer so we pivoted the business from being about 5% digital to being 92% digital in a 24-hour wow. period and somehow um, our tech stack held up it's it's a real credit to the team uh Liam and Lockie and and the guys that um it it worked and suddenly uh our local embraced the fact that they would order on their phone and they would come and collect and we would still focus on the handoff uh because you know we we didn't want to stifle that but we knew that we couldn't have anyone interacting with our team we had to sort of quarantine those who were going into the store we didn't want anyone to have uh any unnecessary risk so the priority was the health and safety of the team and our locals that was that was the the absolute priority and the and the most sort of universal sort of commitment and yeah you know and then from there we just continued to iterate and pivot and as we were allowed to serve a few people outside which happened in sort of July we had upgraded our technology so when you when you arrived at our cafe you checked in so you had your temperature you had the contact tracing it was by reservation you then sat at your table you were allocated 45 minutes you ordered from your phone it was contactless we just did it within sort of very yeah, strict great. safety protocols and and it it's it's worked and we've actually now learned so much from it that we see where our proposition has evolved and and probably will never go back to the way it was well in most cases it will never go back to the way it was because the mm. consumer has been retooled and educated around how they want to be served and how they want to learn about your your menu and your products and what have you so. totally and i do think there's this there's this idea of this is the new normal and maybe we'll never go back to normal <laughs> like back to how it used to be so i think the idea of actually going now this is probably for the long haul like this type the infrastructure that you have the the technology that you have and the processes i think it's a really great idea to be thinking okay well this is probably for the foreseeable future and it can be a positive as well i think it's it's really cool to see that yeah yeah certainly well people talk about 60 days for a new habit and in the case of in the case of the way our local is interacting or ordering with us, I think that they're going to be very accustomed to doing it and that's the way they're going to expect. And it's just like the way that there's been this awakening around the the, the benefits of working from home. And I, I think a lot of people now could not see a day where they don't have flexibility to work from home to some yeah. extent. I, I was one of those. I, I was sort of in that staunch old school traditional basket and I think it was because I worked in banking. Banking was a lot about being at your desk and the FaceTime. And yes, it was important for collaboration and teamwork. But I think I was a, a little bit less flexible. But my eyes and my reality has been completely shaken up. And I, I just see the incredible benefit from having more flexibility with, with work. And totally. I've, I've personally really enjoyed working from home. I miss my team, but 
it's been brilliant to be able to have 30 minutes in the middle of the day and hang out with my kids or finish work at right on five, not have a commute and go straight into dinner and not miss dinner. And then I can work later, you know, put the kids down and jump back on the computer or what have you. That's been pretty magical, the, the time that we've spent um, as, a, as a family. So there's lots of silver linings and I was really lucky that my, my wife, um, my immediate family, my brother, my mom, my mother-in-law, my dad, my friends were, were constantly reinforcing that despite the challenges with the business and the circumstances, there are positive silver linings out there. You just got to look for them. You got to remain upbeat. You got to, you got to appreciate small things. And they were right. And I, I was able to switch my mojo pretty quickly to, to get positive again. And they, you know, it helped tremendously. You know, I'm really indebted to it. Oh, it's so cool. You've got so much wisdom to share. Now, I do want to get into some practical business advice and we might do some rapid fire questions for you just on practical advice that you have for anyone who is listening, who is in small business or in startup or is in is scaling their business. So first question for you, how did you build your network and how did you use Instagram specifically when you were starting your business? Because I know that's been a big part of your strategy. Well, building a network is about being open to meeting new people and trying new things uh, and, and open to, to learning and listening. No one loves a know-it-all. So like the best thing to do is just to ask questions and show interest in people, no matter where they're at in their, in their journey in life, no matter what they're doing. And I think that's the, the best thing. One of the best things about life is like learning about other people and, and just getting, trying to support them if you can. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just fascinated about people's journeys and, and what, what motivates them and what they're passionate about. The second part of the question about Instagram, like Instagram has been such an incredible catalyst for Bluestone. It really rose to prominence, say in, you know, around 2000, you know, 2013, 2014. And what we were really sort of beneficiaries of is the fact that our core customer creates a lot of content and they were creating content for us to then reshare. So we, we've been able to have a lot of different powerful and beautiful images and be able to broadcast them on our channel. Now, a big part of that was ensuring that our stores and our aesthetics and the dishes and, and people eat with their eyes, you know, were on point and consistent. But, uh, you know, and if the experience is great, like people, people are going to take pride and they're going to take photos and they're going to want to tell their friends. And we're very lucky that also a core customer is, is young professional female that are the more likely to project a great experience. So nothing will ever, and this is, this is a long answer to a, a rapid fire question. Like nothing will ever, <laughs> no, it's re- great. nothing will ever replace word of mouth. Word of mouth marketing, nothing will ever place. Yeah. If people have genuine experience, they're more likely to tell others. And now with social media, that rate of communication is so fast and the, the breadth that you, and the amount of people you can reach is, is so, so meaningful. So, but nothing will ever replace that, you know. And can you, um, <laughs> I know you've got a story about Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you yeah. share your Taylor Swift story? <laughs> well, like honestly, like, this is one of these fortuitous things, right? That that like, we open Greenwich, fifty-five Greenwich Avenue, our collective cafe in the heart of West Village. We really have no idea what we're doing. It's way too popular. We've got an undersized um, 
uh, air conditioning unit. You know, we're trying to work it out. Um, we're trying to build the plane <laughs> as it's coming down. And, um, you know, lo and behold, uh, Taylor Swift comes in with a couple of other Aussie girls and uh, she loves it, has a great experience, you know, and she's there with the <laughs> security. And sure enough, she comes back the next day. She Her security detail had called our manager. So she comes back the next day. But the unfortunate thing, well, I guess it was fortunate and unfortunate. The fortunate thing was there was a lot of paparazzi. So suddenly they're taking photos of her coming into Bluestone and what's this Australian cafe? And this is this is in 2014. But the, the negative was, unfortunately, um, there was there was someone in there who who was recognised as uh, someone who had been harassing um, Taylor. So they had to make a very quick exit out the side door into a, into a security car and it was a very abrupt, you know, end, end of dining experience. Oh. But, um, you know, I think what's been really magical about our brand, and this is, things come back to Australian sort of sense of humility and fair go with, uh, irrespective of your uh, social status or your wealth or your fame, uh, you're you treated the same as anybody. So yes. um, I've actually had one day I went down there. I think it was in 2015. It was snowing and uh, we live very close to our collective cafe. So I went down there to see how the team's going. It was on a Sunday, I think, and it was snowing. And uh, there's people everywhere. They're queuing to get in. I'm like, oh, no, you know. I go up to the general manager and I say, like, what are we doing? How do we get these people inside? And he's like, well, I said, Nick, well, what do you want me to do? Like, I, I can't really do anything. Like, you know, there's a wait list and everyone's got to wait. And I'm like, yeah, fair enough. Well, you know, just try and turn tables as much as you can. And sure enough, I go to walk in the cafe and there's Cameron Diaz sitting outside. It's about <laughs> minus 15 and snowing. I walk through looking for the general manager again. I go through to the back room where we have a magazine display rack. And sure enough, we have all these, you know, El Decor and Harper's Bazaar and Vogue. And sure enough, Cameron Diaz is the front cover on one of these magazines, right? <laughs> so I go to the GM. Hey, this, hey, do you know this Cameron Diaz out the front sitting in the cold, you know, <laughs> trying to have a coffee? And he goes, yeah. That's what she's happy to sit out there and like, what do you want me to do? Like she wasn't, she was in the queue and, you know, I can't just move her inside. <laughs> and I nearly sort of cut him off. And I said, no, you're exactly right. That is what we're about. That is Bluestone Lane. Um, no one's no one's too big, yeah. no one's too small, no one's too famous or important. Treat everyone with respect. Treat everyone uh, with with love and and compassion and hospitality. And and uh, you know, I just I th- some of those salient points made me feel, yeah, we got something pretty special here. And I think we're a, a force for good, as Malcolm Gladwell uh, described Bluestone Lane <laughs> as. Uh, you know, we need more Bluestone Lanes in in the world. They're a force for good. And, and I think that's that's the real purpose of what we're about. Um, not only totally. great coffee and food, but just making a difference to the way people feel and, and the type of community they can they can be a part of. That's so so good. So, what are the common mistakes that you see people make, particularly Australian brands who are wanting to come over to the US? So it kind of seems like building your brand in the US feels like the holy grail for a lot of Australian businesses. What are the what are the top things you'd recommend um, someone to consider when they're thinking about doing that? There's two two tips I have. The first one is you ha- you have to be a student of your industry to the highest degree. Now I'm not talking about 
dedicating three years of a PhD on market entry into the US, what I'm talking about is knowing so much about the value proposition and the customer journey that when someone says to you, what happens if XYZ happens, that you actually have a mitigant to that risk, that you've thought about all the variables and you've done it in a really objective way, not in a defensive, subjective way, which I see quite frequently. People go, no, no, well, that won't happen or we'll be fine or, well, yeah, maybe. But I think when you're entering the US, a big competitive, uh, especially a place like New York, which is really the epicenter of the world, you know, I, I just think you, you're much better to have thought about all the things that could could go wrong, all the things that could go right, and just be very methodical and planned. And I think if you're really passionate about your your, your idea or the industry um, that it's that it, that operates in, the value chain it operates in, I think you'll enjoy learning more and asking questions and reaching out to people that can act as advisors and just ask some questions. It's amazing how open people are to to provide information if you solicit it, you know. You say, hey, you know, Laura, tell me, can you tell me a bit about podcasting? Like I was just really into it. It's amazing. Like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll give you 30 minutes. And there's just always salient little anecdotes, key points that you can take away. So that's the first one. The second one is I see a lot of Aussies say, yeah, I really want to I really want to um, grow in the US and um, I'm going to come over and uh, meet some people and you know I'll come again six months later the unfortunate reality is if you want to make it in the US your best probability is you have to go all in you have to move you have to commit a serious amount of time you have to build your network you have to meet who are the facilitators who, who are those that can can give you the right advice can steer you in the right direction you need to feel you need to observe your, your your core customer and, and how they're they're buying, how they're interacting, what are they doing, and how it all sort of parlays into into your value proposition. But I don't think you can just half it. You know, you, you've you've got to go all all in because a lot of these cities, you're not competing against Aussies. You're competing against Brazilians, Italians, Chinese, Japanese. You're competing from all walks of life because New York, it's, it's the headquarters of the UN for a reason, right? It's this, it's this melting pot of the most multicultural, eclectic, inspiring people that all want to make it. And, um, people generally want to make it in the US, but in the big cities, they really want to make it in New York or LA or San Francisco. And I do think it's one of the, and it's hard if you're an Aussie because the lifestyle is so comforting and the way of life is the most aspirational, I think. But, you know, I do believe if you want to make it, it's, it's got to be a full commitment. And people can, people can sense when you're not all in, in New York. I used to see it all the time and like, oh yeah, he's here for a holiday. No, no, I'm going to, I'm going to be here for a couple of months. And like, oh yeah, you know, a couple of months. Yeah. That's, that's not really, uh, it's not really given at all. You know, that's hedging <laughs> your bets and hedging your bets that, you know, often doesn't, it doesn't last work. that long. Yeah. Yeah, that's such good advice. That's such good advice. I'd love to move to New York, so I'm I'm taking that advice. Yeah, um, great, <laughs> on board. Great place, great place to 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 spend a few years. That's for sure. Ah, oh, so good. Okay, final question for you. A lot of our community are small business owners, solo entrepreneurs, and they're juggling everything. What is your biggest piece of advice that you wish you knew when you started Bluestone Lane? Well, my first. Rather a piece of advice, all I would say is 
the amount of respect I have for small business and entrepreneurs is infinitely higher than what I had when I was working in a esteemed financial institution that, that professed to know a lot about business and commerce. I think that what, what is so uh, understated in society is how challenging small business is and the, the resilience and the courage and, and the, and the passion that small business embody. I'm, I have nothing but admiration and respect. And I'm so appreciative, appreciative of the Bluestone Lane journey so that I could actually empathize with, um, what it's like to be a small business owner. And it's tough, really, really tough. But I would say as a piece of advice, I think what's really important is to constantly challenge your value proposition and then set a plan. Whatever, and then outline what your real objectives are. A lot of people talk about, you know, I'm, I want to, I want to have a, I want to make this amount of profit or I want to open another location. Okay. Well, just stepping back a little bit. Why do you want to open another location? What's the driver? Well, uh, it's because it seems the natural thing to do. Well, I don't think that's the right type of analysis or just the right type of planning. Step back and think, well, I want to do it because it will allow me to, I believe if I can do it, probably it'll allow me to get closer to retiring or it'll enable me to um, earn more so I can fund my kids' private school education or or it's, you know, I, I really, uh, I just feel like it's an ego thing to do. I think it's just really thinking about and, and spending time on your plan and what are the real drivers because opening, growing and expanding stores or, or focusing on different channels or hiring people, they all come with risks. Nothing's, there's no free lunch. It's not, it's not like, you know, oh, no, it's great. I just hire that person that's going to help me. No, often you, you're spending limited resources. You're taking on more risk. You've got to get a return from that. And that requires you to spend a lot of time in educating and embedding in the cultural norms. So I think one, you've got to challenge your value proposition all the time. Think about like what makes us special. Why do our customers love us over someone else? And then to do that planning and really, really talk frankly about it. And if it is some things like it's superficial, like I want to build a more valuable business or I want to earn more, that's totally fine. Be really honest about it and then build a plan around it. But, but if it's the case of no, I, I actually, actually just doing it because it seems natural. Well, why add the complexity if you're not really motivated to, for, for these other reasons to take on the risk. And, uh, you know, I, I, I see that a bit. People are like, oh, it just seems right. I should grow. Well, but is, is it really right? Like, you know, are you really thinking about the impact it could have on your lifestyle, on your relationships, on how you are going to be as a partner or a husband or a dad or, or, um, just can yeah. you deal with the risk tolerance? It, you know, taking on investors and things like that, it, it, it seems great. Until it starts not working, work very well. And then it can become, <laughs> you know, like really a challenging and stressful thing. And for a lot of people, you know, they probably just don't need that in their life. They're not, that's yeah. not motivating them. That is so, such good advice. <laughs> I feel like we could talk for ages. But final, final question. I know I said that last question was the final question. But where can people find you on online? Where can people stay connected with you, Nick? 
Sure. So you can find Bluestone Lane at bluestonelane.com and Bluestone Lane and Instagram. They're the, they're the probably best channels. For me personally, it's my LinkedIn. If you search for Nicholas Stone, Bluestone Lane, you'll find me. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on, I'm, I basically answer nearly every LinkedIn message I get. I love feedback on the business, positive and, and constructive. And, uh, you know, and I love um, hearing stories about uh, people that had a great experience or they look forward to coming or, or ways in which we can improve. Um, it's all great. And, you know, I'm so thankful for the support. And the, the reason why Bluestone is, is at 50 locations is because of our incredible teammates and because of our incredible locals. It's not really me. It's, uh, it's, it's that those two cohorts that have made it all happen and so grateful. And particularly in the last year where our team has showed the most extraordinary amount of courage to, to open the stores, to go to work in the face of the largest health crisis the world's faced in the last hundred years. And I'm immensely proud. No matter what happens to Bluestone, um, this will be a chapter that we, we survived the pandemic and, uh, just enormously grateful and proud of my wonderful team and the locals that, that went out there and continued to patron our establishments, even though, uh, it was really scary to do so. Oh, you are so, so great. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll make sure like to keep in touch with how everything's going with the pandemic. And if you come back to Australia, we'll definitely have to hang out and do all the things. Yeah. Yeah. Look, well, we haven't been home for for a long time, but I'm very hopeful of coming home this year in the middle of the year, which I can't wait. I miss, miss my parents and my family and my friends so much and uh, my nieces and nephews. So it's going to be fantastic. But uh, stay positive, uh, look after each other, and just, you know, we'll, we'll get through it. And, uh, you know, hopefully we're in the second half of this whole thing. And, uh, you know, you, you got to just appreciate the silver linings because there are plenty. Despite all the chaos and, and the hurt, there are silver linings and you gotta you got to hang on to those the best you can. Thanks so much, Nick. My pleasure. So there you have it. That is the play-by-play for this week. Wow, what an inspiring story. I just can't believe the way that Nick and his team have responded in COVID. I I think that is just so admirable, the way that they've carried themselves in this time. And I love what Nick said about a cafe and a coffee shop being more than just a transaction. And it's such a reminder to us in business that what we do is more than just a transaction. It's actually, for a lot of people, it might be the thing that is their act of self-care that day, or it might be the thing that actually helps them to feel good about themselves. So just a reminder that even in COVID, even when we're isolating and we're we're trying to be careful and, and quarantining and doing all of those things, just remember that your business can be that community touch point for someone and also that you as a person can be that. So whether it's an email or an Instagram post or a phone call, whatever it is, just a reminder to stay connected and, and to check in on people and see how everyone's going. All right. <laughs> That's my little, hey, we got to make sure everyone's all good. That's my little chat. Okay. Music from today's episode is by the wonderful Jake Scott. You can find him on Spotify and Apple Music. As always, please join our Facebook group and continue the conversation over there. Just search My Business Playbook and you will find us. 
You can catch us next week, same time, same place. Go get them. Bye.